0: Hello, it's Thursday, February the 23rd, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me in studio, Michael McFall, Director at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute of International Studies, Stanford Professor of Political Science, the Peter and Helen Bing Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, and from January 2012 to February 2014, the U.S. Ambassador to the Russian Federation. And that's our topic today, Donald Trump's administration and Vladimir Putin's Russia. Ambassador McFaul, good to see you. Thanks for having me. So you wrote in the Washington Post uh, earlier this month, I think February the 6th was the day it was published, if you want to look it up. Uh, you talked about Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, and you found some parallels. I found these very interesting. Parallel number one, like Trump, Putin had never run for office when he was elected president of Russia in March of 2000. Yeah. Like Trump, Putin championed populist nationalism. Yep. Promising to make Russia great again know if he wore a red ball cap or not but that was his idea Mm, did not but the idea was there for sure right like trump putin talked in so many words about carnage terrorism bad economy similar to what trump talked about in his inaugural address yeah like trump putin declared war on the media and as we're seeing here in the early days of the trump administration there was a liberal resistance within the russian government after putin takes office so here's the question Come the time when President Trump meets President Putin, they shake hands and President Trump looks into President Putin's eyes. When he looks in those eyes, does he see Donald Trump?
1: (laughs) Uh, That's a great question to start with. Um, Probably. I mean, I think uh, a couple of things. I mean, first of all. I made those comparisons, and I worry about those comparisons, but I also want to add a caveat that I also have greater faith in American democratic institutions in the year 2017 to act as a check uh, on those kind of, you know, populist behavior than Putin faced in 2000.
0: This is an important point. What are the checks and balances in the United States that Russia does not have?
1: Well, Russia, back in 2000, Russia, the system in 2000 was different than it is today. Back in 2000, they had just emerged from a 10-year struggle to try to create democratic institutions, uh, capitalism, and, and uh, to create a liberal, uh, Russian state liberated from the Soviet Union, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a triple transformation all at the same time. And they got through the end of empire, they created some weak, but, but I would look at them and say, these are market institutions, private property, free prices. And on the democratic side, they were fragile, but they would look like democratic institutions to you and me. Mm-hmm. But they were very fragile because those first two things were so hard. Right. Uh, and because Russia for you know maybe a 1,000 years, but most certainly for hundreds and hundreds of years, had been ruled by dictators, not Democrats. Um, and therefore, Putin, when he came in, uh, could weaken those institutions. And, and like you said, he went first after the, the press, mm-hmm. but he didn't just criticize the press, he shut down the press. He took, took out the two major media stations that were quasi-independent from the Kremlin, uh, constrained the ability of other uh, newspapers and radios uh, to, to be independent. Uh, that, of course, Mr. Trump, President Trump, has called the press the enemy, but right. so far, of course, he hasn't shut down uh, any of the press. Uh, second courts, uh, we've we've looked at and, and seen how the courts in, in our country are independent and we also have a federal system. Uh, Russia has both of those things on paper but in practice they proved ineffective to constrain the power of the presidency. Uh, and then finally uh, civil society, popular mobilization, Uh, you know, to put a check on presidential power in Russia. It existed in 2000, but they were exhausted after a decade of this economic depression. And so it was rather easy for Putin to uh, control, I would say. He didn't squelch it entirely, but kind of control their ability to control him.
0: Right. Donald Trump's Russia policy is, I think, Embryonic perhaps is one way to describe it. It There's really not much on paper I found two things he said about Russia, which I found interesting in a speech in April 2016 quote I believe in easing of tensions and improve relations with Russia from a position of strength only is possible and Then when he was on the NBC News commander chief forum, which is in September 2016 He and Hillary both did that show with Matt Lauer Trump said quote. I don't know Putin He said nice things about me if we got along well, that would be great now We don't know what Donald Trump thinks about Vladimir Putin, but there was a story out this week, a news report, I think NBC reported it, that says that the Russians, to use a very bad word, are doing a dossier on Donald Trump, and that's going to be presented to to, uh, Putin. And the uh, dossier concludes that Trump is a risk-taker who can be naive, and they quoted a deputy foreign minister, Andrei Fedorov. And Mr. Fedorov said Trump, quote, doesn't understand fully who is Mr. Putin. He is a tough guy. Let's put you in that position for a moment. You were called to the Trump White House, and you were asked to put together a dossier on Vladimir Putin. Yeah. What do you tell President <clears> Trump? To get him
1: ready for his bilateral meeting with Putin, right? First,
0: how many times have you met Putin? How many times have you sat down and talked to Putin?
1: Mm, I first met him in the spring of 1991, so I've known him for a long time. Uh, he
0: was in Leningrad at the time?
1: Yeah, was he was the deputy mayor there, and he worked for a liberal Democrat, uh, Uh, Small L, not big L, um, and small D, not big D. Uh, Very pro-Western guy, Anatoly Subchak. And we were there to help them uh, think about a democratic process for passing a budget uh, at the city legislature, (laughs) ironically. And he was in charge of foreign contact, so he was our contact. Um, I've seen him off and on, but I guess probably half a dozen, maybe... 10 times when I was in the government. And of course, as ambassador, and I also worked at the White House before, um, uh, every time I was in the room with him, it usually was just three or four people, but he was meeting either with Obama or Biden or the national security advisor. I was in the room, but not directed with him. Although he directed some very, uh, how to put it diplomatically, some very sharp comments towards me personally. Uh, because he didn't like me as ambassador. He thought that I was too open. He thought I spoke too much about democracy and markets and freedom. Uh, And he thought that I was there to undermine him. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say we're close friends. We're not pen pals now. And I'm actually banned from traveling to Russia right now. I'm on their sanctions list. We have a sanctions list of Russian officials that can't come here. I'm on their list. But to your hard question... um, I actually did that um, uh, on the eve of President Bush's first meeting with Vladimir Putin. Mm -hmm. Uh, Our mutual colleague here, Condoleezza Rice, uh, invited a group of experts to come in. And we spent about two hours with uh, President Bush and Vice President Cheney. And um, I remember it very well. It was in the residence uh, at the White House. Uh, I'd never been back to the residence, even though I worked across the street for three years. Uh, He was very generous with his time. Uh, And he was right in this moment that we're talking about with Trump. And uh, my advice then was kind of the advice I would say today. Um, First of all, Putin knows what he wants from President Trump, Mm -hmm. very clearly. Uh, He wants him to do certain things that are in Russia's national interest. So, for instance, he wants uh, President Trump to lift sanctions on Russia. Mm -hmm. He wants President Trump to acknowledge the way that he's fighting terrorism in Syria is in our common interest. He wants President Trump to kind of agree to a sphere of influence, right? You get, you get your part, we get our part, and we really don't want you mucking around in the uh, with relations in the former Soviet Union. And in his dream of dreams, he wants President Trump to recognize Crimea as part of Russia because candidate Trump hinted that he might do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what he wants. And in return for that, he's going to say nice things about President Trump. He's going to throw a nice party for him. He's going to have a nice state dinner for him at the Kremlin. But, and believe me, they know how to do that well. And that's the problem, I think, for President Trump right now because in those things you just quoted from him, he always defines good relations as the goal of his policy towards Russia. Right. And I think that's backwards. I think the goal needs to be You know, uh, fighting terrorism, containing Iran, uh, increasing trade and investment between our two countries. In other words, something concrete that serves the security and well-being of the American people. Mm -hmm. And then the means, and I would say this about any country, by the way, not just Russia, but the means is either engagement, containment, or isolation. And I would warn him not to take that bad deal. Uh, You get a nice press conference for me, and in in return, the United States needs to lift sanctions, endorse what we're doing in Syria, et cetera. That's a bad deal. Mm
0: -hmm. I was listening to George Shultz at the Commonwealth Club yesterday, and he was asked a question about Russia, and how to proceed with Russia, and he mentioned two things specifically. He said, number one, he likes the idea of putting troops into the Baltic states, and then secondly, he suggested an energy initiative in which you put oil and gas into the Baltic states so the Russians can't cut off their gas supply in the winter. Do the Russians respond better to diplomacy or action? It's, it's every diplomat's question, is talk outweigh gestures, or do gestures matter more than talk when it comes to the Russians?
1: Well, most certainly Putin respects actions, not right. words. Uh, he really, um, he is a man of action in his own view. Uh, he's called bluffs before. Uh, most certainly, in my view, he did that when he went into Crimea. Uh, he annexed territory for the first time since World War II and the reaction from the Western world was rather weak. It was lots of tough words and no action. And then I think he doubled down and uh, supported the separatists in Eastern Ukraine. And it was only when the Ukrainians fought back, number one, and the West, the United States with our allies in Europe, Mm -hmm. imposed sanctions that he stopped that war. So I, you know, I, I associate myself, I mean, (laughs) <laughs> who, who would be so foolish not to associate themselves with George Shultz, uh, somebody who's been a mentor of mine for, for decades? And, and uh, his, his book uh, was a Bible for me, thinking about diplomacy. And you got to follow up words with actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you should never make commitments that you're not willing to follow through on. Uh, if you're going you're gonna to draw lines in the sand, you better be ready to... Uh, uh, execute on them should those lines be crossed and most certainly with dealing with Putin that's where you have to work.
0: Lindsey Graham last week at the Munich Security Conference said and I quote 2017 is going to be the year of kicking Russia in the ass. Is that something that Ambassador McFaul would retweet?
1: (laughs) 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 Uh, I I was at the Munich Security Conference uh, with Senator Graham. Uh, I didn't hear him say that. Um, uh, That's one of those phrases you know to come back to our earlier conversation uh, I hope he I hope he has some things that he, working with the administration, is going to do to back that up.
0: I ask that because is he speaking for Lindsey Graham and just trying to get a nice tasty little sound bite, which he succeeded, or is he speaking for Senate Republicans, or is he speaking in some way for the Trump administration? Does he know something the rest of us don't?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Does he know more about what Russia did in terms of meddling and intervening in our election in 2016, that you and I don't know, right. he may because of his job, right. and therefore he may know that this is going in that path. I don't know that for sure, but that's intriguing. Um, what I don't, what I would not say, he knows is what will be the policy of the Trump administration towards Russia, because on the one hand, uh, the most important policymaker, the president, has said some very. Um, engaging things about Putin. He's complimented him in ways that I think is wrong. Uh, He's flirted with doing some of these, uh, you know, these nice things for Russia. Um, And at the same time, his national security team, and let's give them some time to settle into their jobs. They've only been there a few weeks. But when I listen to what our former colleague uh, and now Secretary Mattis has said about Russia, uh... quite at odds with what president trump has said he wants to be tougher with the russians uh... even secretary Tillerson, who who has a reputation for getting along with putin because he had to get along with putin to do the big deals Mm -hmm. uh... i would just say well he knows putin and if you know putin you may not be so uh... to 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 come with uh... concessions right and then just a few days ago another one of our former colleagues uh... Uh, General H.R. McMaster has just been named to, to to be the new national security advisor. Uh, I know H.R.'s views on Russia pretty well, and he strikes me as a guy that also is not going to want to rush into giving away concessions and not getting anything in return. So I think there's going to be a big, uh, important uh, discussion about what the policy should be, and, and maybe it'll eventually be along the lines that Senator Graham suggested. But right now, I would say there's a lot of contradictions.
0: Right, so you mentioned the Russian meddling in the election. Uh, Eric Swalwell, who's a Democratic congressman from the other side of the San Francisco Bay, the East Bay, he's co-sponsored a bill in the House uh, with Elijah Cummings, a Maryland congressman. They want to create a 12-member bipartisan panel to look into it. He basically wants a 9-11 commission on Russian interference in the election. Uh, Congressional Republicans have pushed back and said, well, we'd like to look into Russia too, but we're really curious about what comes out of the intelligence community. They're still obsessing what would happen to General Flynn. Let's again put you in this position of calling the shots here. What would be your recommendation for looking to Russia? I I see the Russian meddling and I see a lot of various issues here. There's a question of, first of all, okay, what sort of meddling do they do in terms of just trying to get information in the press in terms of so-called fake news? Secondly, did they have conversations with the Trump campaign or not? That clearly has to be settled. Thirdly, was there any involvement in any way in actual vote counting in the American public? And then finally, looking forward to 2018, 2020, future elections, what patches do you put? How do you prevent right. them from doing this? So right. how would you, how would, what parameters would you set up an investigation to keep them focused? In other words, what, what would be in balance and what do you think would be out of balance in investigation?
1: Well first of all I support that legislation 100% if anybody cares uh, but I think it's exactly the right way what well, would
0: you would you do would you do a commission would you do a panel set up of congressmen or would you do something like the 9/11 commission, I like the 911
1: Commission idea mm-hmm. uh, exactly what that legislation says I've yeah. talked to Congressman Swalwell about it in fact mm-hmm. um, and the reason is I'm just not confident given how polarized our polit- politicians are I'm not so sure. The American people are that polarized, uh, and we have some people around here that have been writing about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from Montana, you know, uh, Trump land. I have lots of friends and family members that voted for Trump, uh, but I don't think they, they're not as polarized as the people I see on TV arguing about these things. I'll just leave that. That's just my anecdotal uh, little uh, small dive into things I know nothing about. But what I do know about is uh, the many, many questions that are left an- unanswered about what the Russians may or may not have done during our election. And I feel very strongly about this is a national security issue. This is not a Democrat or Republican issue. If we can't elect our own a president of the United States in a sovereign way without foreign interference, uh, what's more important than that? Um, and so i don't I just don't feel like. We'll get to the bottom of that uh, with a commission set up by either house of uh, either the Congress or the uh, or the Senate. I also think it's important to have a bipartisan commission with people that that everybody respects. There's a lot of distrust of, of politicians right now. Right. Wouldn't it be nice to find a group like we did and and the 9/11 Commission? Remember, was not easy to set up. It was it was also quite controversial, uh, and I think they did a lot of good work. Um, and and I think in terms of the parameters, I think you just you just laid it out, Bill. I, I agree with all of those. Um, I think those are the questions we need to know the answers to, uh, and and we need to prepare for 2018 and 2020 because so far we've done nothing. Um, uh, I used to work on cybersecurity in the government. Uh, I I know. The, the second most powerful country in the world well in terms of their cyber capabilities, that's Russia. We're number one, they're number two. And I think most Americans have a very shallow sense of their capabilities. Uh, you only We only saw just a little bit of it and in a very unsophisticated way, uh, what they've done. Those capabilities are gonna get better and better by 2020. And I would just remind those that are skeptical in a partisan way, why should any republican assume that the russians are going to be on the republican side in 2020 uh, you know what what may look like a good outcome now could come back to haunt you uh, in the next election cycle so this should be an american security interest and not a partisan issue
0: uh, do you think putin do you think the russians actually thought donald trump could there are two schools of thought in terms of meddling one school of thought is they they did their best to put their thumb on the scale to help get Trump elected. The other school of thought is they didn't think Trump would get elected, but if they fiddled with the election, it would hurt her, and it would just drive her down and make her look weak, and those, therefore she would enter office as a weakened President, advantage Putin. Do you subscribe to either one of those theories, or we they're just not, don't know? They're not
1: mutually exclusive. exclusive. Right. You can do both of those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, I mean, I think the the evidence is overwhelming. That they did steal this uh, this data, and notice the verb I use. I don't like the word hack. Hack, hack feels like what what kinder, you know, what my son can do. Uh, they stole this data for political purposes. Right. They then published it for poli- to to influence our democratic process. Whether it was the, 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 the variable that, that caused President Trump to win, that's a hard social science question that people should answer. But did it influence the election? Absolutely yes. Uh, why did candidate Trump cite WikiLeaks uh, the hundreds of times if he didn't think it was useful to him? So that to me is hugely uh, important and we need to make sure that doesn't happen again. You asked a question, that was about intentions, what yes. about, uh, that was about capabilities, what about intentions? Um, uh, Mr. Putin, it was very rational for President Putin to prefer to see candidate Trump win over candidate Clinton because uh, Donald Trump said many of the things we just talked about that are in Russia's interest. Mm-hmm. So you don't need a PhD in Russian studies to figure that out. Like, the guy that says he's going to look into Crimea being part of Russia is the guy that you would prefer in the White House compared to the other candidate who's talking about uh, increasing sanctions, arming the Ukrainians, etc. So that's, not, that's first. Second, the piece that maybe not everybody knows is that Putin believes that Clinton interfered in his election and the parliamentary elections in December 2011 Mm -hmm. that were falsified. There were lots of problems with that election. And Secretary Clinton, Secretary of State Clinton at the time came out on the record and criticized the free and fairness of that election. Mm -hmm. And Putin publicly said she gave a signal to the opposition to come out and demonstrate against him. Privately, he said, uh, things a little less uh, diplomatically, and he was really, really upset about that statement. Uh, by the way, a statement I helped to write. Uh, <laughs> so you know how he feels about me. Um, uh, and that vendetta, he's a guy that keeps vendettas. He right. remembered that. So th- when the opportunity came for payoff, uh, I think he took it.
0: Interesting. The, the U.S. ambassador to Moscow lives at a residence called Spazo House. Yes. Spaso is a shortened version of an impossibly long Russian word. you Feel free to show off your fluency in Russian if you want to and tell us the full word.
1: Uh, I'm even yeah, forgetting now. Spaski, uh, Spaski, Spaspensky Bolvar. Thank you. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, tweet back to me if I got that wrong, listeners.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, if you had that word on Wheel of Fortune, you would never win the jackpot. Uh, Spaso House has been open since 1933. It's a beautiful neoclassical building that goes back to yeah. about 1913. I think in Russian it translates to savior on the sands or something yep. like that. Uh, it's a house with a lot of history. William Bullitt, who was FDR's first ambassador, uh, used to throw lavish parties. Uh, yes. Way more in, lavish than the ones we threw. Just there's, a, a there's one in 1934 where he um, hires seals to come, trained seals, and they come in there carrying, I think, champagne trays and Christmas trees and things like that. Yes. The handler of the seals sits in the corner and gets smashed during the party. Uh, by the time the night is done, the seals are running loose because the handler's passed out. So... Good times in the 1930s, I guess. (laughs) Uh, There have been only 26 ambassadors living in that house going back to 1933. Only two of them, and this includes you, were non-diplomats. So right now, Donald Trump has a choice. He he needs an ambassador to Russia. Now, I don't know the time frame on this. Your successor is John Teft, I believe. Yes. Um, He is a career Foreign Service fellow, as was John Beryl, whom I believe you succeeded in Moscow. What is... Again, let's get back in the advice mode here. You're advising Trump on who to send to Russia. Do you go foreign service? Do you appeal to Trump's side of a business person? What is the right profile for the ambassador to Russia?
1: Well, first of all, you're you're taking me down memory lane, uh, thinking about Spasa House. It was a fantastic residence to live in. Uh, we had some pretty incredible parties, though not like the ones they had in the 30s. Uh, but it was just this great job where it was your job as ambassador to welcome into your house uh, you know, uh, jazz musicians like Herbie Hancock, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the NBA. Uh, you know, and, or, or eBay. Uh, the CEO of eBay came to visit us and, and dozens more. So, uh, and you know, I'm really proud of our, my country. So to be the representative of this fantastic place in Russia, uh, an honor of a lifetime. Um, uh, I hope to get back to Spaso House someday. Your question's a hard one. Um, and I don't have any. I don't have a straightforward answer. Uh, well, first of
0: all, I'm assuming you're not volunteering for the job.
1: Uh, no, I think this is not my time. Uh, maybe another time. Was maybe
0: the slight problem of not being allowed in the country?
1: <laughs> well, there's that slight problem. Uh, it's called agrément. You have to receive agrément in order to be welcomed as the ambassadors. Papers, right. Right. Yeah. And uh, I may not be able to get it right now. Um, <laughs> You know, for me as ambassador, I was there at a pretty difficult time in U.S.-Russian relations because Putin was so paranoid about the challenges to his regime and he was blaming us at the time. So it was, a you know, we were playing defense all the time. Um, uh, But it most certainly helped that I had a relationship with the president. I knew the policy uh, and that helped me do my job. So if if President Trump has somebody like that, Mm Uh, that knows Russia well, Uh, I think I I wouldn't necessarily say that it's best to go with a career person. I'm not in that camp that says uh, political appointees by definition are bad. Uh, But I said a second thing, who knows Russia well? I had a great advantage in that it was not my first assignment uh, in Russia when I arrived. A lot of diplomats when they show up, it is their first assignment. Mm-hmm. they've spent a year or two learning the language but they really don't know the place. I, 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 this is my I'd lived there many times. I'd lived like six years of my life in Russia and that I would say that combination for him right now uh, would be the right one. somebody that he trusts and knows uh, but also somebody that knows Russia well. And by the way, I, I don't want to name them because, me naming them might hurt their chances, uh, but there are a couple of people that fit that fit that that mix that I think would be excellent ambassadors. Uh,
0: George W. Bush, his choice in 2001 is Eugene Verchupo. Did I get that yep. right? Yep, or Verchupo.
1: Sandy Verchupo, as they call him.
0: Uh, what was interesting about Sandy Verchupo was that he was not the first ambassador to come out of the sh- shoot in that administration. There's a bit of a controversy. Bush's first picks were Britain, France, Japan, Canada, India in the Bahamas, Malta, Jamaica, then he finally gets around to choosing Russia. And some interpreted that as the Bush administration telling Russia that, you know, you're just not a too, as important to us as you might think you are. Is there any way that Trump, given that Trump is having challenges, if you look at the Washington Post as a tracking of his appointments right now, and it's sad to see just how many vacancies there, are, yes. especially on the <coughs> ambassador's front. He's done China, Israel, and the UK, and I think that's it. That's it. Uh, is there, does he in any way run the risk of making things worse with Russia by dragging out a choice for months.
1: I think he does. I mean, I think more generally your point is correct, that by not having a deputy secretary of state, by not having a deputy secretary of defense, let alone down to the assistant secretary level, that's where policy starts, assistant secretary level. Uh, And he doesn't have a Russia guy at the White House or a Europe person or, uh, a russia woman you know assistant secretary over at the state department uh, or defense and so they're not doing the interagency policy process that that generates policy so i think that's a huge mistake and already in russia i can tell you i, I watch the russian news closely uh they're already starting to fade to say oh you know uh, the window of opportunity for changing this dynamic is closing and most certainly the, the, a bold move to appoint somebody along the parameters that we just talked about mm-hmm. now would send a very positive signal to Moscow. Uh, and the longer he waits, the, the less he has the opportunity to do that.
0: When did Obama first go to Moscow? Uh,
1: July 2009, I was on the trip.
0: Okay, so early into his presidency.
1: Yeah, he had his first meeting with President Medvedev April 1st, 2009, that took place in London. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he went to Moscow very early on, and just in the you know the bureaucratic politics of it all, he went to Moscow before he went to Beijing, mm-hmm. and that was noticed in Moscow. Mm-hmm.
0: How soon should Trump meet with Putin?
1: I, I think he needs to have a meeting of some sort somewhere in the spring. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, on the sidelines of a G eight meeting. I think uh, one coming up. Um, uh, yeah, I. I There's nothing, you know, one thing, obviously, I was not a professional person in government. I spent five years in the government. Uh, I've spent most of my life uh, here at Hoover and uh, in political science. Um, One thing I did learn uh, is the incredible importance of those bilateral meetings. There's not, you get more done in 15 minutes with two presidents sitting at the table than you get done in six months of the bureaucrats trying to get things done, because A, they can make decisions, and then that's policy. When Donald Trump says we're lifting sanctions, that becomes policy. Uh, He has that kind of power, especially in foreign policy. Uh, Or the opposite, he says we're gonna arm Ukrainians, that becomes the policy. Uh, Number two, uh, these relationships tend to be important for getting things done, and the longer it drags on that they don't establish a rapport, uh, the harder it's going to be to establish that rapport.
0: We are running out of time here because I know you have to dash and This is a big country and there's a lot to talk about and hopefully you'll come back and we'll continue the conversation But let's suppose he does sit down with Putin and he has that 15 minutes to converse a lot of things he can go over. So what are the one or two topics that Trump has to bring up? What should what should he prioritize? Is it is it Syria? Is it is is it possible meddling into European elections this summer? Is it his treatment of the Baltic nations Is it Crimea? Just go
1: you know, the one other thing, because I've been thinking about your earlier question, if I could have a shot at advising him before he goes, as I would want him to read, read up on Ronald Reagan and George Shultz and how they dealt with the Soviets. And I don't mean to say that Vladimir Putin is a communist in the Soviet Union, but the idea of peace through strength, right. that's a really good idea. Express that to Vladimir Putin in that first meeting. That will help you get bigger deals down the road later. Uh, I think his biggest... Uh, problem right now is that Vladimir Putin thinks he's inexperienced, that he doesn't really understand foreign policy, that he said some things, including about U.S. Russian relations, that are so pro Russian that they're even hard for Russians to believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I, w- I was just at the Munich Security Conference a few days ago, and even they were kind of surprised by that. So I think coming in strong. And, uh, you know, making sure that Putin understands our commitments to NATO, making sure he understands our commitments to the, the, the liberal Western world order will help him, not hurt him, uh, do real business on those other issues, whether it's fighting terrorism or dealing with Iran. Because if he senses weakness, then I think it, 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 President Trump will be playing defense for a long time afterwards.
0: Is it analogous to Kennedy meaning Khrushchev in Vienna?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because that was one of the metaphors that the Obama political people were worried about in her, his first meeting with Medvedev. Right, very the green
0: American president getting enrolled by the
1: yes, big, tough uh, they were president. very worried about that, um, and that was with a brand new president in Russia, Medvedev, and a, a new president in in our country that that at least had some experience uh, with foreign policy matters in Russia. He'd traveled there. I think they should be worried about that. I think the the one thing that I would also caution against, you know, President Trump, I don't know him personally, but but he seems like he's a guy that does things impulsively based on emotion and intuition and the friendly guy across the table. Well, guess what? Uh, Vladimir Putin is a former KGB officer. Actually, he said very famously, there's no former KGB officers. Uh, He's well-trained. In knowing about those impulses, in knowing how to take advantage of that stuff, uh, and so I would I would hate for them to roll out and have a press conference and have the president be embarrassed by Putin by saying, "Well, we just agreed to do this," and then he turns to uh, and he'll say, "Right, Donald, we agreed," and he'll he'll nod, and then will have to to come back, you know, have to say, oh, he really didn't mean that. And I've seen that before with Vladimir Putin. He's Mm -hmm. done that to some American officials. He needs to be careful to not have that happen.
0: Okay. Ambassador Michael McFall, thank you for a fascinating conversation. Did I get that right? (laughs) Your Russian is better than mine. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy choices confronting America's 45th president. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which sends you the best work of Hoover Fellows, including Ambassador Michael McFaul, straight to your inbox. You can also find the Hoover Institution on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst, at Hooverinst. Michael McFaul is also on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at McFaul, that's M-C-F-A-U-L. From the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. Look for us soon with another installment of Area 45. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts in the Hoover Institution, please visit
1: hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.